Happy Mother's Day to those of you who are moms. We know that this day is is a day of celebration, but we also know that this day is is a difficult day for some of you. We know that there are some of you here who have lost children. There are some of you here who have lost mothers, and there are some of you here who are trying to conceive, and it's not happening yet. We know that this is a difficult day for some of you, and I want you to know that we, we celebrate you as well. We love you as well. Our pastoral team on Friday when we gathered, we thought of you and we prayed for you. So we, we want you to know that you are cared for. We, we are thankful for moms. We are thankful for the women in our church. If it were not for women, uh, no one would be here. So we're thankful for you. We're thankful for the blessing that you are. Um, so we are going to be continuing our, our Exodus journey this morning. So last week we looked at Exodus 4, 1 through 17. We're going to pick up in verses 18 through 31. So Cole kind of lets you guys know what was going to happen a little bit. He kind of teased you out there a little bit. So this morning we're going to, we're going to look at one of the most contested and debated and theorized texts of scriptures, one of the most highly debated passages of scripture. And you'll, you'll figure out why here in just a, a few minutes. So we're going we're gonna to go through this together, all right? I don't want, uh, we need to work through this together. We need to do the mental work together because if not, you guys are going to hear some weird stuff and you're going to be bored by me talking. So I want this to be a work that we embark on together. So if this is your first Sunday at Frontier Church, uh, we are excited to have you. You picked a great Sunday to get a flavor of our church. So uh, we are, we're going we're gonna to do this and God is going to be glorified and we're going to be filled with joy this morning. So would you stand with me as we look at Exodus 4, 18 through 31. Please stand if you're able. If you have a copy of the scriptures, great, look into that. If not, we're going to have the text on our screens. Exodus 4, 18 through 31. And Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words that the Lord, all the words of the Lord, which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders and people of Israel Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord, all the words the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. This is the word of God, brothers and sisters. It is true and it is good. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is in fact true, that your word is in fact good. 
Lord, we need your help this morning because this is a confusing passage. This is a weird passage. This is a passage that is offensive to our 2019 American minds. So we ask that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and in our minds this morning, that we would feel deeply about you, that we would be moved by this passage, that we would think deeply about you, that that our mind would honor you and glorify you as we sit together, as we dig into your scriptures. We do all of this because of your son Jesus, because he came and got us, because he gave himself up for us. So Father, help us to fix our eyes on Christ this morning. Help us to do the work of the church. So it's in the name of Jesus, your son, and by the power of the spirit we pray, amen. Well, foreskins, am I right? We're, just, we're going right here, right? I'm going to acknowledge the elephant that's in the room, and we're going we're to address this. This passage comes out of nowhere, it seems, right? Those, 20, those verses 24, 25, and 26, it seems that they just come out of nowhere, and that's because of the way that we, we read this passage, right? We, we, we are Westerners, and we read in a particular way. We, when we read a story, we think that the story is the exact chronology of events, Near Eastern authors, so the, the people, the men who wrote the Old Testament literature, they at times did not care exactly about chronology, right? So one of the first ways that we, can, we need to properly understand scripture is to understand what exactly is going on in, in the scripture. What did the author intend to communicate? What did the author intend for his readers and listeners to receive? What information was he trying to pass down? Sometimes that involved chronologies, and sometimes that involved narratives, it involved stories that weren't, necessary, weren't necessarily chronological. So one of the, the issues with this passage is that it seems like it has chronological issues. And a lot of textual critics will say, well, see, this is why you can't trust the Bible. See, this is, you, you want to believe that this book is true and they can't even get a chronology straight? So there's several reasons why they, they say this is out of chronological order, and we don't have a whole lot of time to go there this morning, but, but I want to see that I don't think that the chronology of events is exactly what we are supposed to get here, right? It's a narrative. It's a story. We're to understand the data and the theology and the content that's in, being embedded in this narrative, right? Sometimes, you know, some, your spouse will ask you, oh, what did you do today? And you, you'll give them the events, and sometimes you, you will give them from when you checked in at work all the way to whenever you got out of the car door when you pulled into your driveway. And sometimes you share some information. You share the high points. You share the important parts. You don't necessarily go through the chronology. So uh, with, with that knowledge of that, the, chrono, the chrono, chronological uh, events is not the most important thing. But I do think that the author of this, Moses, who we believe is Moses, that he wrote this intentionally. He wrote it with purpose. Yahweh inspired Moses to write down certain things and to communicate certain things, and he did that in a specific way so that his hearers, so that his readers would know what's going on. He recorded this Exodus event so that the people of Israel would never forget where they came from. He recorded this event so that they would know that Yahweh is close. Even when he seems like he's distant, he is close. He's not abandoned them. And so that's what, what's going on in Exodus. Moses is recording this so that the people of Israel, God's people, will have this history recorded for all of time. Chronology is not the most important thing here. The, the truths and the theology and the content is what is important here. And then we've got some other verses that are also really interesting and really difficult. And we're going to get through some of these interpretations because I, I think when we see what's actually going on here, it's going to help us see that we're not that different than Moses. 
That we're, we're, not that un, we're, we're not that far off from acting in, in similar ways and that we too need someone to sacrifice on our behalf. So that's what we're going to be doing here. The, the theologian Karl Barth, he, he said the most enigmatic, the most confusing, the most difficult to understand passages of Scripture are the most important passages of Scripture. I'm not exactly sure if I agree with that. Right, we'll find out later. But... Um, I, I do think that the spirit of what, what, what Bart is saying is that just because something is weird, just because something is confusing, just because something is outdated does not mean that you get to skip over it. It doesn't mean that you get to say, that's weird, I'm going to put it over here and I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to dig into that. We have been given this book. God has used the authors of it. He inspired them to record history, to record prophetic literature, to record wisdom literature. Men and women have spilled their blood to preserve God's word throughout history, translating it, getting people of all languages access to it. And so if we, if we really believe that this is the word of God, we don't get to decide what's important and what's, what is not important. Right? If we believe that this is God's word, his revelation to us, we don't get to say, this part, really important. This part, weird. Uh, let's get rid of it. Let's, let's, do it. let's pull a, a, a Jefferson and uh, remove all the, all the weird parts and we'll just have some of these cool sayings of, of Jesus here. Um, we don't get to do that. So this morning I want to help us understand the importance of this text and I want to help us grow in our knowledge of scripture. How many people have read this passage before? Out of those of you who read this, who read it after Sunday when Cole told you that this was going to get weird? How many of you read it for the first time that time? Okay. How many of you have never heard this passage how many of you wish you had never read this passage? Okay, you can be honest. These difficult parts, we have, to come, we have to come to terms with. We have to figure out what to do with them because we have been given them by God. So this morning, we're gonna understand, we're gonna try to understand what's going on and we're gonna see that we're not that different than Moses and that we need someone to step in on our behalf. So let's recount a little bit of the narrative thus far and then we're gonna break our text up into three chunks. We're gonna look at it three chunks. But to get some of the potency of what's going on here, we've gotta remember the narrative. I don't doubt that you guys have good memories, but for my sake, we're gonna go through some of the narrative again. We're not gonna go all the way back, but what's happened most recently in Exodus four and then in Exodus three is that Moses was tending his father-in-law's flock and he comes across this mountain, and on this mountain he sees a bush that is on fire, but it's not being consumed, right? There, there are flames, but nothing is, is crumbling, nothing is burning, nothing is falling apart. He goes to it, and he encounters God. He encounters Yahweh, the God of Israel, and, he's, and, and Yahweh calls out to him, Moses, Moses, right? He has this personal encounter, this personal revelation uh, he shows himself to Moses. Moses has just encountered this, the one true God, the God of gods, the God of Israel, Yahweh, in person, just encountered him in person, and then Yahweh starts unveiling his plans for how he's going to get his people out of slavery. Right? Moses, is, he's excited and stoked about the fact that his people, his kinsmen, are going to be freed, but whenever it comes time for, for Yahweh to say, and I'm going to use you, Moses, Moses starts complaining he starts giving excuses. He tells God, no. He says, send somebody else, not me. Send somebody else. The anger of Yahweh is kindled against him, but Yahweh shows grace and mercy to Moses and says, okay, I should get rid of you right now, but I'm not going to because I want to use you. Don't you have a brother, Aaron? Okay, cool. Aaron can talk really well, right? All right, so what, here's what we're going to do now, Moses. As a concession, I'm going to 
tell you what to tell to Pharaoh, but because you're being a sissy and you don't want to do this, you're going to tell your brother what to say. I am God to you, and you're going to serve as a God type to him, right? It's not getting weird here. Moses isn't being deified. It's, it's saying, I'm going to reveal to you, and you reveal to Aaron. Because of Moses' rebellion and disobedience, he has to become a middleman in a process that was intended to be a one-man job. And so he is supposed to go to Egypt. That's where the text leaves off. Go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. One of the first clues to help us properly understand what's going on in verses 24 to 26 is for us to get our minds around the geography, right? If you guys know me, if you've heard me preach before, I hate slides, right? I don't, I don't use slides. I don't like dry erase boards. But this morning, we're going to use some slides, all right? Uh, so I'm going to have a slide of a map up here. And this is a map of what, where the areas were that were believed that we, we were reading about Moses and his travels where Moses fled to. This is not the best graphic, it's a little hard to, to see, but I'm going to try to help you out here. So, so somewhere out here we've got Egypt, right? And then we've got Mount Sinai where Moses has just encountered Yahweh, right? He, he just encountered Yahweh at Mount Sinai. It's somewhere around there. People debate. There's a lot of weird YouTube rabbit trails that you can go down to try to figure out where Mount Sinai is actually. I don't suggest doing that unless you just are adventurous, but you can do that. All right, so we believe it's somewhere out here in the middle, and then somewhere out here in the on the right, on the east side of this map, is, is Midian. It's Midian. So Moses was all the way over here on the left side, commits murder, flees from Egypt because he knows that he's going to be killed because he put an Egyptian to death. He flees to Midian, and that's where he encounters his soon-to-be wife. That's where he encounters Jethro, his, his father-in-law. So he marries into this family out in Midian, right? and he's apparently take, being employed by his father-in-law to be a shepherd. So Moses is, is, is taking care of his father-in-law's flocks, and he's somewhere out here in the middle of the map, right? He's somewhere out here in the, in the middle of the map. He encounters Yahweh. Yahweh says, go back to Egypt, right? Your, your time out here is done. Go back to Egypt, Moses. We don't know if this is what, we don't exactly know, but it would seem that since God had just told Moses that he was going to send Aaron to him, that it would be the most logical, make the most logical sense for Moses to have waited at Mount Sinai. Right? At, at some point, God had, had inspired and convicted Aaron and revealed himself to Aaron to say, Aaron, go and meet your brother. He needs your help. It would seem to make the most sense for Moses to wait there and then to go to Egypt. We, we don't know all the, the, all, the, all the nuggets of what's going on here. There's a lot of speculation, but on some level, we have to use our imagination here. So Moses, instead of going back to Egypt, instead of waiting for Aaron, he heads to Midian. He goes back to Midian. He goes the opposite direction. Right, I'm going to leave you in a little suspense here, and we're going we're gonna to tie all this up together. But this helps us understand if, and try to understand this passage, what is ultimately being communicated here. Moses, instead of going back to Egypt, instead of waiting for Aaron, whom God was sending to Moses as an act of grace and mercy, he goes back to Midian. He goes back to what is known. He goes back to what is known to be comfortable. So that's the narrative. That's what's going on here, right? Um, so I said we're going to break up our, our text into three chunks. The, the first chunk that we're going to look at is verses 18 through 23. Then we're going to look at verses 24 to 26. Then we're going to look at verses 27 to 31. I think what is going on here is it's showing us three things. It's showing us Moses' distrust and delayed obedience. It shows us that God makes Moses see the importance of obedience and trust. 
And I think the last portion of our scripture teaches us the result of Moses' obedience and the result of Moses' trust. So, 18 through 23, that's going to be our first chunk that we have here. So, as I said earlier, much debate has been had on the chronology of this text. Some believe it was added later on, that, that Moses did some writing, and then some editors did some writing after the fact to try to bring some things. If they were trying to bring clarity, I don't know why they would add such a confusing thing. So, I, I think that this comes from Moses. Um, <coughs> But Yahweh, at some point, is telling Moses that Aaron is coming out to meet him and that he is going to be Moses' mouthpiece. As I said, with that map, it seems most logical that Moses would have waited for Aaron. But I think if we use our imaginations here, if we're embedding ourselves into this narrative, we're going to see that what Moses does in going back to Midian is not that out of character with what we've just seen Moses do. He was in the presence of Yahweh and said, no, how dumb do you have to be? You're seeing this bush that's on fire, and a voice calls out from it and from above it, and then that voice tells you to do something, and you say, uh, actually, what about if you said somebody else? What if somebody else were to do this? I want to see the result of your plan, but what if you sent somebody else? Because, you know, listen, I got a jacked up speech. I can't talk properly. Um, who am I to go there, God? Who, Yahweh, who am I to go there? You, you know who I am. Moses, he did this. And so it doesn't seem too far-fetched to think that Moses went to Midian, not out of outright disobedience, but some delayed disobedience, right? He's delaying his obedience. Now, if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know that, hey, go put your cup in the sink, and then your kid walks into the different parts of the living room and then goes over here and walks over here and walks all over the place, and you say, hey, put your, put your thing in the sink, Put your cup in the sink. And they said, oh, I am. I just had to go check on some stuff. I got to, had to go have a conference with mom and see if this was okay. I, they're not being outright disobedient. They're delaying their obedience, which is disobedience. It's disobedience. I, I think that's what's going on here in our passage, that Moses is, is delaying his obedience. He wants to go back home, check on everything, do things on his own terms. Right? We see in the New Testament that, that a man tells Jesus that he wants to follow him, and Jesus says, okay, follow me. And the man says, but first let me go back and bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Or Jesus is not being cold and calloused. He's poking into the sensitive parts of this guy's heart and is showing, I need all of your allegiance. I need all of your affection. I need all of your trust. I need all of your obedience. I think what we see shown here is that Moses is not giving Yahweh all of his trust and giving Yahweh all of his obedience. Even though he is a, a follower of Yahweh now, even though he's encountered the God of Israel, there's still some parts of his heart that are rebellious. There's still some parts of his heart that don't show trust. Right, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like us. But we see Moses go back and he goes to Jethro, his father-in-law, and says, hey, Jethro, I've enjoyed living out here. Um, I need to go back and check on my family to see if they're still alive. I need to go check back on my, my kinsmen to see if they're still living. That's not why Moses was supposed to go to Egypt. So I think what, what's getting at here, what, what's happening here is that we're seeing some more, some more uh, narrative gems in here of, of Moses' distrust in Yahweh. Moses' distrust and disobedience, right? He, he's starting to change why he's got to go back to Egypt. Why didn't he tell Jethro that he had to go back because Yahweh had just revealed to himself on the mountain of God? We don't know, but that's not why he tells Jethro he's going back to Egypt. So he's there doing this thing, 
right? He's there. He's getting, getting ready to go to Egypt at some level, and, and we see the, the word of the Lord. We see Yahweh come to him a second time. He comes to Moses and Midian a second time. Moses is supposed to be either waiting for Aaron or, either on, or on his way to Egypt, and the word of the Lord comes to Moses a second time. And he says, and Yahweh tells Moses, Moses, the men who are seeking to kill you are dead. Why did Yahweh have to tell Moses this? It seems maybe Moses was still scared. He was still fearful that there were gonna be some dudes who wanted to kill him that are still alive. Moses is not trusting God's providential planning. Moses is not trusting in Yahweh's providential timing. This is why the word of the Lord comes to him a second time. So Moses gets on, starts making plans. He says, okay, you've come to me a second time. I think I understand. I think I'm going to move on with this. And so he, <clears throat> he saddles up his family. Yahweh tells him again. So I, right, we keep seeing Yahweh coming in and out of here. So this is why some people think there's chronological issues. That doesn't matter. Um, he tells Moses what to say. He tells Moses what to do. He, he says, and we're not going to get into this because we're going to cover this in, in following sermons, but he, is, he says, tell Pharaoh to let my firstborn son Israel go. Let my son go. It's showing the relationship of, between Yahweh and his people. Let my son go. And if he says no, oh, and wait, by the way, he is going to say no because I'm going to harden his heart and make him say no in the beginning. So Moses is, is being communicated. I think Yahweh's trying to say, Moses, you're, my plans are not dependent on you, but I want to use you. I want you to be my servant. I want you to be my messenger that brings my firstborn son out of, out of Egypt. I'm going to do all the work. You just need to go and speak. You just need to go and do what I tell you to do. So Moses and his family set off on a trip. They go to Egypt. Was Moses supposed to bring his, his family with him? We don't know. That wasn't in the, in the conversation that Moses had with Yahweh. But nevertheless, he, he takes his, his wife and his two sons. We know who one son is already. That's Gershom. Right? Moses met Zipporah, married her, and she gave birth to a son named Gershom. And then there's a second son along the way. And later on in Exodus, the son's name is going to be revealed as Eleazar. It's important for you to know. So Moses, Zipporah, Gershom and Eleazar. Those are the humans that are, that are in the story. We've got to keep those, na- those names lodged in our minds so that we can help ourselves to see what's going on. So they're on their way, right? They're on a donkey and on foot. Um, it's not... I don't know what's going on here. This is bringing back flashbacks of the Advent Sermon tragedy of 2018. <laughs> Many of you were there. I almost forgot about it. Okay. Um, so they're, on, they're, they're riding an animal or they're walking on foot. They're heading to Egypt, and they're getting tired, right? It, you don't just hop in the car and go across town. You don't, just, you don't just get in the car, and then 20 minutes later, you're at Trader Joe's. You, you have to put some work into going where you need to go. You've got to put some work into doing and, and being obedient to the, the commands of Yahweh. So they're, they're tired. Their eyes are heavy. You know, they're, they're smelly. They're, their clothes are dirty. They're, they're with at least one animal and two boys. We don't know how old they are, but I'm about to drive to Texas tomorrow, and I'm, I'm glad I have a car, but I'm also not glad that I have to be in, in clothes in a five-seat vehicle with two toddlers. So I'm, I'm trying to put myself in Moses' place here. He's exhausted. They stop at, at somewhere to sleep at night, and then all of a sudden, something very interesting happens. 
verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him. Who? Him. And sought to put him, who? We don't know. To death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin. Which sons? We don't know. And touched, the ESV gives, uh, takes some liberties here and says, Moses' feet, but the original text says his feet. So whose feet? We don't know. And what do feet mean? We'll talk about that in just a second. Sure, it cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. What does that mean? We don't exactly know. So he, who? We don't know. Let him alone. Who's him? Uh, we don't know. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. One of, uh, one of the resources that I found on this, these three verses was uh, by a man named Vodi Bakum. And he was preparing a sermon on the, this text. And he said, one title kept coming back to me over and over and over again. And that title was, I don't know. And that's the honest answer, right? Because the original text, the Hebrew, the, the language this was originally written in, does not mention any personal names other than Zipporah's. It's he, him, and his. That's all we know. We, we know that Zipporah is mentioned. She does, she, she acts, she's obedient. Somebody's getting circumcised on the, on the, the road. That's crazy. <laughs> and then somebody's getting their feet touched with a foreskin. That's also crazy. We don't know exactly who is being sought by Yahweh to be killed. We don't know exactly which son is getting circumcised, and we don't exactly know whose feet are getting touched with the foreskin. We don't exactly know. But there are many, many interpretations. There are lots of interpretations of what's going on here. But other than knowing that Zipporah is the one who is acting, other than knowing that, that a son is being circumcised, we know this, that whatever the issue is, that is causing Yahweh to put out a hit on somebody, put out a hit on him, trying to enact a death penalty, is that it has stayed, it's stiff-armed, and it, and it causes God to stay his execution. And, and what, what is that thing that causes God to relent? It's circumcision. So whatever's going on here, the, the reason that Yahweh is seeking to kill him is because him or hims have not been circumcised. I'm going to give you, uh, well, first, before we, before we get into some of the interpretations, we've got to, be, we've got to remember what circumcision is, right? Um, I've read a lot on circumcision the past couple of weeks. Um, Genesis 17. <laughs> Genesis 17, we see Yahweh give Abraham a sign of the covenant. Re remember, Abraham was chosen by God to bless the nations, to bring out many descendants of the God of Israel, of the one true God. Post-Tower of Babel, Yahweh disinherits the nations. He says, I'm, I'm tired of your wickedness. You're no longer my people. And then he chooses one people for himself. And to that people, he gives a sign of the covenant that he's going to make, that I am going to bless you with sons. I'm going to bless you with daughters. Through your, through your descendants, the nations will be blessed. And we know that that that. Blessing is ultimately found in Jesus, right? Yahweh would, and I'm trying to get my mind around this conversation, but hey, hey Abraham, uh, why don't you, buddy, why don't you try to count some of that sand? 
And then uh, let me know how, what number you come with. Oh, you can't count all the grains of sand? Okay, I'm going to give you more descendants than that. Hey, Abraham, uh, take a look and try to count some of those stars. Oh, you can't count all of them? Okay, I'm going to make your descendants more numerous than that. This was a serious thing. Yahweh was entering into this covenant, into this partnership, into this relationship with Abraham so, to be his messenger, to be his agent of change, to be his emissary, to be his ambassador, to show that the people of Yahweh were distinct, that the people of Yahweh belonged solely to Yahweh. And the way that Yahweh did this was by giving Moses, by giving Abraham the sign of the covenant. That sign was circumcision. It's Important for us to know that other forms of circumcision were being practiced in the, in the ancient Near East. We know that at least the Syrians, we know that at least the Egyptians were also practicing circumcision. But circumcision amongst Yahweh's people and how it's described involves a removal of foreskin, not just a cut in it. Graphic, I know, but it's important. So Yahweh, what he's doing is marking out his people. He's saying, these are my people. No one else gets them. These are my people. Abraham, this thing, this circumcision, this, this act is to remind you and to remind your people that you belong to me. Circumcision was personal, obviously. It was permanent, obviously. And then a little less obviously to our understanding, understanding in 2019, it was prophetic, it was personal. It involved private, tender areas. It was permanent. You can't put back on what's been erased. And it was prophetic. It reminded the men that they belonged to Yahweh. When a mother and father would have their son circumcised on the eighth day, it reminded them that they belonged to Yahweh, that they were in Yahweh's community. They were his people. And when a husband and wife would come together, it would remind them that they belonged to Yahweh. They were being faithful to one of the commands, which was to marry the people of Yahweh. So we, we think that circumcision just be belongs to, to, the, to the men who get circumcised, but it, it belonged to husbands and wives. It belonged to mothers, fathers, and sons. This was something that even though it happened to the man, it reminded them that they were marked out, that they were distinct. Right? So there's a, there's a short theology of circumcision for you. So now that we've got, we understand, okay, whatever is causing Yahweh to try to kill someone, the issue is that someone or someones are not circumcised. So I'm going to give you the two most popular Christian interpretations of this text. I think I read about at least like 18 different interpretations of one part of these three verses. There are multiple interpretations, but I'm going to give you the two most prominent Christian interpretations. Right, so the most prominent one. If you look on the web internet, you'll find lots of interpretations. But here are the two most viable, the two most, uh, the, the, the ones that you can make the most logical argument for. Christian interpretation number one, Yahweh is seeking to kill Gershom. So Moses' oldest son. Like there, there are some translations that show that the angel of Yahweh is present. And then there are some, some, uh, some literature that says that like, he's put him in a full Nelson. He's choking him out. I don't know, is a full Nelson involved choking? Okay, okay. My, my knowledge of wrestling is WWF. So, um, uh, so some people think that the angel of Yahweh is there and choking Gershom. Or, he's, or Yahweh has sent some sort of illness or seizures begin to happen uh, in Gershom. And, and he's being killed. And Zipporah knows what's going on. And so she picks up a flint and circumcises her uncircumcised son. And then touches his feet with his foreskin. 
That's the, the first interpretation. Some problems with this is that where the heck is Moses? Where's Moses at in this story? What's Moses doing? Right? Nowhere else in the scriptures do we see that a woman is commanded to perform a circumcision. It was an elder or a priest, or now in Judaism, there are, somebody has got a sole job of performing circumcisions. So this is very unusual. Zipporah is, is performing a priestly act. Why is Moses, God's servant, God's messenger, God's prophet, why is he not performing the circumcision? Well, this is uh, why... Christian interpretation number two comes in is that Yahweh is seeking to kill Moses because he had not circumcised his son or sons, and he himself was not circumcised. Right, so there's a couple interpretations even in that one interpretation. But they believe that Yahweh is being sought by God for not taking on the sign of the covenant, whether in, him own, in his own self or whether just in his sons, or whether or not it's he and his son who's getting circumcised have not been circumcised. We'll, I'll get into some of, some of these things. Um, but this is, this is Christian interpretation number two. It's one of the most popular interpretations that Yahweh is, being seek, is seeking to put Moses to death. He meets him, and he intends to kill him. Zipporah knows somehow, some way, what's going on, and she is obedient. She knows that her husband is a Hebrew. She knows that Hebrews are to be circumcised, and Moses is not circumcised, and Gershom is not circumcised, or just Gershom is not circumcised, and, and Moses is being killed for his negligence, for his disobedience, and giving his firstborn son the sign of the covenant. So she circumcises her son, and and touches Moses' feet with it, with the foreskin. And Yahweh relents. He lets him alone. I'm going to give you a Jewish interpretation just because it's entertaining. Um, but it's important to know because this is how a significant portion of people interpret this passage. Right, I want to help you become better students of the scripture. So Luke Snowden and Joseph Donifro can vouch for me on this, but I went to talk with a rabbi this week. Right? It sounds like a, the beginning of a great Baptist joke, but I, I really did. <laughs> I went to, to speak with a, with a Hasidic Chabad uh, rabbi. He runs the Jewish kosher deli on university. Great corned beef sandwiches. Go there. Support his business. But I, I went in there with, with Luke and Joseph, and I, I, while, he's ring, while he's making my sandwich, I said, hey, I actually came in here today because I wanted to ask you about a really interesting portion of the Torah. And so he said, what is it? And I said, Exodus 4, 24 through 26. And so then he's, as he's putting the corned beef on dark rye bread and mustard, while he's assembling my sandwich, he begins to, okay, familiarize himself with, okay, this is what this passage is about. So then he sets down with us. He's diving in and out of conversation. He'll come and say a lot about circumcision and foreskins and then go back and make another sandwich. And then he comes back in here to talk with, with Luke and Joseph and I. And this is the interpretation that he has. It is um, the Jewish Midrash interpretation. And they believe that Moses was born circumcised. So right out the gate, homeboy, was, he was ready to go. Right? He was good. He was good. And they believe this because, because Miriam gives birth to him. She, she sees him, and, and he is good. He's tov. That word tov is the same word used in Genesis 1 where God looks out at creation and says, behold, this is good. This is good. And so they believe this is why she, he is good, because he was already circumcised. So they think that Yahweh in this scene is, is seeking to kill Moses 
But it's because his second son, Eleazar, was not circumcised. So they believe at some point in time that Moses had Gershom circumcised, but Eleazar was uncircumcised. And so in Moses' hastiness and heading back to Egypt, he had, he had forgotten to circumcise his son. So this view, uh, you have to believe that... Um, you have, you have to believe that, that Eleazar was an infant, right? He was supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. We, we don't know all those details, but this is what they believe. They believe that Eleazar was uncircumcised, and so Zipporah touches Moses' feet with Eleazar's foreskin. The last piece of, of information to help us understand this text is this, that the word feet here doesn't mean feet. It doesn't mean feet. The, the Hebrew word is regel. It is used in context similar to this as a euphemism. So do you understand what I'm saying here? I, do I, have, I don't want to have to go, keep going. But it doesn't mean feet. It means the private parts. So when Zipporah touches Moses', what does what she touch his feet with the foreskin? What in the world is going on? What, what's going on here? What's going on? This is what I think is going on. This is my interpretation. You have to use your imagination here. You have to interpret this in some way. I think, to me, this is the most faithful interpretation of what's going on. Moses has just shown us that he has delayed his obedience to Yahweh. He went back home to take care of his affairs, to ask his father-in-law for permission to go back, presumably to take care of the sheep and get all of them ready for whatever shepherds do. And he had time to circumcise his, his son, and Moses himself was not circumcised, or at least he was circumcised in the Jewish, in the Egyptian method, which is not the circumcision for the Jews. And so he neglects to take seriously the sign of the covenant. He, he is going to be God's messenger, God's servant, God's prophet, and he is not taking seriously the sign of God's covenant. And so while they're on their way, Yahweh meets Moses and intends to put him to death. Zipporah understands what's going on. She understands that her husband has, has been rebellious, that he has delayed his obedience in having himself circumcised and his, at least one of his sons. And so she picks up a flint and circumcises her son, and she touches Moses' feet. Remember, feet. This is a sign of imputed righteousness. It's, she, it's, it's her saying, Moses, you disobeyed. So now one of her sons has to sacrifice himself. He has to be circumcised, and, and when, when she touches Moses' feet with her son's foreskin, she is saying, Yahweh, please stop. E even though he needs to be circumcised right now, you want him to go to Egypt, and so I'm imputing to him the, a circumcision. Because remember, the act of circumcision wasn't, most, wasn't the most important thing. It was the heart behind the circumcision. This is what we see in the New Testament, the circumcision of the heart, that Yahweh cares about the heart. So in this moment, Yahweh is showing Moses, Moses, I'm in charge. Moses, I know what's best. Moses, you need to listen to me. You need to trust me. You need to obey me, Moses. Pretty crazy way to get someone's attention, right? Seeking to kill somebody while they're, while they're um, foggy-eyed trying to go to sleep. Moses is spared by the act of obedience of another person. She's, Moses is spared by someone else's blood. Right? Okay, we're starting to land the plane here. This is a big, long plane, but we're landing the plane now. We're, we're getting there. So Moses is spared from his death penalty because of Zipporah's obedience in circumcising her son, and he is spared because Zipporah has applied the blood of another to him. Moses now gets it. Moses now 
understands that he is to be obedient immediately. Moses now understands to trust in God's providential plan and in God's providential timing. He's now enabled again to obey. The Lord commissions him, and he goes back. And so we hop into verse 27. It's like it never happened. You think there, there should be some notes here like, oh, yeah, that was a crazy night last night. God was trying to kill me. But that's not in there. So it just jumps back into the story. Moses and Aaron, they, they, they congregate at Mount Sinai. Okay, this is why I believe that, that it was showing Moses distrust was because he fled to Midian. And then he comes back. And as he's going back to Egypt, Moses and Aaron meet up at the mountain of God. Right, so this kind of, I think, signifies that Moses should have waited, but he didn't. And so they meet up. They go to Israel. They gather all the elders. They gather all the people of Israel, and they tell them all that Yahweh had told them. They performed all the signs that Yahweh had told them to perform. And when they heard this, they believed that Yahweh had visited them. They believed that Yahweh had heard and seen the afflictions that they were enduring. They bowed their heads and they worshiped. Obedience leads to worship, and worship leads to obedience. This is what we see going on here. Moses finally gets it. I've got one graph. We're not going to walk through this whole thing, but uh, we're going to have this up here. As I was studying this passage, I thought I had an original that turns out it's been thought about for a long time, so it was humbling. But there are a lot of parallels between Moses and Jonah, two of God's prophets who rebelled. All right, so God calls a pro the prophet to preach in a foreign land. We see that in Moses. We see that in, in Jonah. The prophet tries to refuse. They say, no, we're not going to do that. They head the opposite way. Remember, Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh, but he fled to Tarshish. Moses is supposed to go to Egypt, but he went back to Midian. Divine death penalty nearly imposed during travels. Yahweh sought to kill Moses. Moses gets, or, and Jonah gets chunked off of a ship because of the raging seas. He gets in there, but God spares both of these men. He wants to use them. God renews the call. Go to Nineveh. Go back to Egypt. The prophets finally cooperate with the calling. They say, okay, I, I get it now. You're going, to have your, you're going to have your way. I'm to trust and obey. And so the prophets go and they preach the message that they were told to preach, and the call comes to successful fruition. Repentance happens in the city of Nineveh. Worship happens in the people of Israel. And we're about to see a lot more stuff unfold because of Moses' obedience. This helps me understand that I'm not that different than Moses, that you're not that different than Moses, that we're not that different from Jonah. We are told to obey, to trust. And we, we give our lives to, to, the, to the Lord. We believe in the gospel, but there are still some parts of our hearts where we don't want to surrender to him. We want to say, God, you can have the Sunday me, but the Monday through Saturday me, that, that belongs to me. You can have these parts of me, but you can't have all of me. We still show distrust and disobedience. We're told to love and lead our wives well, and we, we say, I'll do it when it's easy. Let me read a few more books on marriage, and then I'll, I'll probably have enough information to love my wife. We distrust the providence of God. But we're, we're told to submit to and to honor our husbands, and, and we, we don't. We don't honor them. We don't encourage them. We don't celebrate them. We don't come alongside them. We're told to, to lead godly and quiet lives and to work with our hands, and we, we run our mouths and we say things that bring division and hurt. We're, we're told to do all of these things, and yet we, we delay our obedience. I'll get my act together, I, I promise. Just give me some time. I'll, I'll be obedient to evangelizing my neighbor or coworker or family member or friend. Or we say, 
send somebody else. And God tells us, no, I'm sending you. We have to be reminded that we are empowered to obey and to trust by Christ's sacrifice. In the same way that Moses required someone to step in on his behalf and to obey God, and just like Moses needed someone else's blood and someone else's sacrifice, we too need that. We need to be reminded that if you are in Christ, that's already been given to you. That Jesus came to this world, he took on the form of a servant, and he died on the cross, and he counted that as joy. He obeyed the will of his Father. And because of that sacrifice, because when we place our faith in Jesus, we are given Jesus' account of righteousness. We are given Jesus' mind. We are, we are viewed by God as Jesus, perfect, holy, righteous. That should inspire us to obey and to worship. That should inspire us to trust in Jesus, even when times are hard, even when things are difficult. We need to trust and obey because Jesus has gone before us and he has trusted, he has trusted Yahweh perfectly and obeyed Yahweh perfectly. If you're here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus, if you're not a lover of Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you need the sacrifice of Jesus to obey the commands of God. You need the sacrifice of Jesus to be spared from the death penalty of sin. You need the sacrifice of Jesus. That means everyone in this room needs Jesus, needs someone else's sacrifice, needs someone else's blood, because ours, they're not good enough. We need to trust Jesus, church. We need to obey Jesus, church. Let's pray.